everybody and welcome back to the Movie Scramble podcast. We have a special treat for you tonight, not just because all three of us are in attendance, but lo and behold, we've actually all went to a cinema for the first time in about five months, and I'm not going to lie, I absolutely loved it. But before we speak about that, let's see how everybody is. John, how are you? Good. Things are the same as they ever are. Let's face it, nothing's really changed in the last couple of months apart from actually getting out to cinema. So that's a small mercy in the face of Scotland just about to lock down again. So Yeah, well, they can stop me for going to somebody's house all they want. They can shut the pubs for all I care as long as just keep the cinema open for at least another month. Yep. <laughs> Mary, have you been? Well, I'm in one of the, the bad areas. So I live in East Renfrewshire, so I'm now under some sort of semi-local lockdown or whatever. But I'm with you, semi, as long as the cinema stays open, then that's all I care about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're affected, are you, John? Not to give your location away to your legions of fans who might stop you. Not yet. MacArthur Towers is not in the catchment area for lockdown <laughs> quite yet, but we are adjacent to at least two of the areas, so I don't think oh. it's going to be very long. I just wonder. Did you, you have your own yeah, has a state just has a state's his own local authority area. Well, as we've been saying, we have been back to the cinema, and lo and behold, we all went to go and see Tenet. Now, this is a film whether you like it, love it, hate it, had no idea what the hell was going on. It's cinematic. You need to see it in the cinema. It's just as a blockbuster, it really deserved to be seen on the big screen. You want to crash a plane? But not from the air. No, it's so dramatic. Well, how big a plane? That part is a little dramatic. Now, this is a tough film we really can't discuss without going away too many spoilers, and I'm not even too sure what is a spoiler and what isn't, because I haven't had this film having seen half a trailer completely cold, but... The official synopsis on IMDb says, Armed with only one word, Tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond dual time. This gives away absolutely nothing of the plot. Now, I don't know how much you want to mention because, like I say, the trailer doesn't give away a lot, but within the first five minutes, it tells you the premise of the movie. So it's not really a twist as such, but... I what are you trying to explain that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not sure I understood it, if I'm being quite honest. I feel very ill-equipped for this podcast. <laughs> John, you're very smart. How would you explain the plot in as vague a term as possible? It's a spy story more than anything else, but it has elements of thrillers and it has a sci-fi element as well. Again, this is very difficult to talk about as you guys have said without giving too much i think we're going to have to maybe mention some elements just so that we've got something to actually talk about otherwise it's just going to be dead air but then again we could go back and sort it again now there's a wee hint for you as well isn't it exactly. <laughs> yeah it starts off as an action film there's an action scene at the very start of it which you see a little bit of that within the trailer which is set at the Kiev Opera, I believe. And like you said, Thomas, that gives some of the premise to it. And from there, the protagonist, who 
is called either the American or the protagonist. It's John David Washington. He's never given a name and it's basically his story as he uses the word tenet and the interlocking fingers symbol, which you see an awful lot, sometimes very subtly, sometimes not so subtly, in order to work his way through this mystery of something that's happening or something that has happened or something that might not happen. <laughs> that's about as clear as you can get it. Yeah. I do find it quite interesting you mentioned the fact that the that John David Washington is called the protagonist in the film. I didn't even notice he's never referred to by name until I checked the credits afterwards. We're doing prep for this podcast. I think that's a real testament to the movie as well, that you don't even notice it doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I don't know if you're selling me, did you, did you notice? I noticed that he made a point of saying it several times during the movie, I am the protagonist <laughs> in this story. And I kind of thought at one point, I was like, is that his name? And I was like, don't be so thick, Palmer. He's just saying he's just saying that. But then, like you guys, when I looked up afterwards, I was like, oh, he was literally saying that that's what he was called. But yeah, I, I don't think it needs names. It's, you know, it's as John said, it's a spy story. It's kind of surrounded in mystery and whether or not you can work it out is, you know, testament to your own intelligence. But I think, I don't think it needs names or even like, you know, silly code names or anything like that the sort of tenet and hand gesture is enough to sort of signify there's something else going on there and I don't think you need to know that John David Washington's character is called you know Mr Smith in order for you to enjoy the film more. I 100% agree and the fact that you say it's not a code name it's not what they say they, they don't refer to him as the protagonist throughout the movie yeah. like, it's, like it's like 007 for example we'll get back to that in a minute but it's just he refers to himself as it Mm-hmm. as being the protagonist of this story and I did pick up on that but I never ever I didn't even realize that he's never mentioned by name which really does like play on the spy aspect of it unlike James Bond super agent who's always undercover using his own name which I've never understood in decades of these movies <laughs> but not he's one the most person spy there is. <laughs> yeah it's not even Bond I recognize that name is he not that super spy who's always going undercover <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the arrogance, the arrogance of that man, they won't even change his name for a mission. A mission. But, I mean, this movie, as we've kind of touched on without getting into too much detail, it is totally mind-melting in terms of the plot. It's really fantastic, as you mentioned, John, it's got a lot of sci-fi element. I don't think it's really worth trying to work out too much. I think it's best just enjoying as a spectacle, would you agree? Yeah, I did a little bit of background digging because I wanted just to know where the word tenant came from because... For the first like six months of seeing the trailers, I kept mispronouncing it and calling it Tenant, which was <laughs> obviously it's like a Scottish beer, so it's not the same thing. But apparently it comes from a, a Latin palindrome and it's a, a stone that's been carved. And no matter what way you, you tip the stone, the words all read the same way. So there's like, eh, I think Rotas is on there, um, Opera, Tenant, and um, a couple of other words that are actually used throughout the film as people's either names or locations. So that's as far as I'd went in terms of digging but i just like to know little like pub quiz things like that just in case which is quite genius when you think about that show plot in the movie yeah, <laughs> totally. yeah. okay we can't really talk too much about the plot as such but what about the performances i thought the performances in this movie were fantastic especially washington rock patterson and kenneth branagh who i think is just excellent in this role well, I'm going to disagree slightly. I felt like he was 
chewing the scenery a wee bit towards the end, old Kenneth Branagh, but I did enjoy, you know, he's the sort of, you know, Russian supervillain or whatever you want to call it, but I did think towards the end he was getting a little bit more theatrical and over the top and it kind of took me out of the story a little bit because mm. although it's not, you know, hyper-realistic, it was kind of flowing in a certain way and the performances were all quite subtle and quite nuanced and then as he got sort of bigger and more hyperbolic I was like oh actually you're kind of taking me out of this a little bit really no, I didn't get it at all especially in relation to the plot of his master plan I think he was allowed to ham up a little considering um I mean yeah let's just let's just cut to the chase it's really a James Bond movie by sci-fi element and You've got the supervillain, and all James Bond supervillains have their own ideas of world domination. Kenneth Branagh's uh, Andre Sator has got an incredibly ambitious plan <laughs> when it comes to world domination. It's totally comic book, and it's dastardliness. Les Luthor could dream is something <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> it's totally off the wall mental. So based on that, I'm quite happy for him to kind of ham up a little because, hey, his plan is the most insanely evil I've ever heard of a bad guy. And it's very yeah, selfish as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it as well, at the, the start of the film, maybe for the first two thirds of the film, his character is totally in control. He knows exactly what he's doing and the, the way that the events are unfolding. It's only in the sort of the last act that he doesn't really know, so therefore his character changes subtly. He's not the same confident person, so therefore it's more as a bit of bravado and everything coming into his performance to reflect the fact that he isn't quite sure of what's actually happening anymore, which I thought it was, it's one way of reading it, another way of saying, yeah, just he was completely hammy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. He's very cold as well. He's very brutal. There's a scene with, again, this isn't a spoiler, but with his wife, Kat, played by Elizabeth Debisky. But there's a scene when he's going to, like, uh, threatens violence on her. And I remember watching that scene feeling very, very unnerved by the cold and calculated way he did it. And I couldn't help but think, is that based on real domestic abusers? Because there was something just dead realistic about the scene that really made me feel uncomfortable. I imagine, yeah, it was quite full on. Yeah. yeah, I imagine he's very thorough in his research. So you, you could be onto something there. He probably has maybe watched, you know, I don't know, tapes or something like that. But I mean, I liked him in it and I really like him as, like, I always think he comes across really well. I just thought towards the sort of maybe the third act or whatever, he just kind of took me out of it a little bit. But then I didn't particularly enjoy the sort of last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie. So maybe that's kind of played into it as well. I, I thought it was like born meat bond meets inception up until that point and then the last sort of bit just kind of lost me a little bit but yeah i mean i like i like him and i liked his character well not liked his character but thought he was good up at that point it was very to me it was almost like a spiritual sequel inception at times it was very similar and the tone and just the overall feel of the movie i felt compared to other christopher nolan films but yeah i loved the ending I just again it was just that whole spectacle idea of it and there was so much happening that I was just transfixed to the screen. I had no idea what was going on at times, but I couldn't look away. There was a sort of a statement of intent at the, the very beginning because you're kind of thrown into the film. You're given no preamble, you don't know what's happening and then it's just a, a massive big action scene with people wearing masks and sorry gas masks 
and their faces are obscured and all that time, so you don't know who's actually doing most of the, the running about and shooting and stuff. And sometimes you don't actually know what they're saying. Now, I'm sure we'll have a wee discussion about that in a couple of minutes. But it throws you off guard, and it never really changes in that way. You're, there's very few times during the film where you're actually spoon-fed information. There's a couple of characters who do do that. They're specifically there for that. I'm thinking of the Sir Michael character, the MI6 character played by Michael Caine. And there's another couple of them who they, they put in small pieces of information but if you're not paying attention, you will not pick up on it and you won't understand things that are happening later on in the film, basically because they're not telegraphed to the audience in any way. They're put out there, but it doesn't seem to be the most important part of the conversation. Like if you think about the conversation that the protagonist has with Sir Michael, they're sitting down having a meal. Well, Sir Michael's having a meal and they're talking, there's all this information getting passed back and forward, but at the same time, you're distracted by the fact that the waiter's really snobby and he's mildly racist at the same time as well. So that's kind of distracting you from what they're saying. So unless you're really tuned into it, then you're going to miss certain things and you're going to be going, hmm, why are they doing that? Where it's actually very clear that they've done that. Now, I only got that because I've seen the film twice. And in the second viewing, I was able to pick up on certain things that I missed in the first viewing. And I thought I had pretty much got it sorted after the second viewing until I came out of the cinema and my son said to me, he said, who was that character at the start? And I was like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> I must admit, I must have, I, I got really distracted during that Sir Michael scene because I couldn't stop watching Michael Caine eat chips. I was like, wow, that guy's literally just turned up, got a massive paycheck in a Nolan film, and he's just sitting eating a plate of chips. I want that guy's life. And then I was like, no, pay attention, because it's one of these films that, you, from the outset, you know you're going to have to work for it. But yeah, there is so many things that I think are, as you say, John, sort of designed to distract you from the information that's been given. Maybe that's to prove whether or not you're a good enough spy if you pick up on the, the main points of the sentence as opposed to going, wonder if those chips were cold. <laughs> it's all very well saying that Michael Caine has earned those chips. He was in Jaws' Revenge. I am not arguing that. Like, I just, I'm not arguing that. I just, the guy is obviously there for a paycheck. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing about this film. I mean, I, I'm not going to turn, turn around and tell anybody that their opinion of the movie is wrong. If people don't like the film, they don't like the film. I just think this is a film that you cannot make a form an opinion on, liking it or uh, not liking it based on one viewing. I think mm -hmm. if all people put the film say they didn't like it, may enjoy it more a second time. Now, that's why I kind of contradict myself so I did like it first time. It could be that I watched it a second time and go, actually, these things, you know, the gaps are filled in. I didn't like it, but it's definitely something that merits repeat viewing because that's the premise of it in many ways. It's meant to be something to watch more than once, which is quite clever for a blockbuster as well because it's saying, go to the cinema again. Or, let, let's be clear, this isn't a blockbuster film. This is an art house film that's just got a massive budget. The ideas that are in it and people who are actually starring in it are not totally sort of big names. I mean, John David Washington heads up the cast in this film. He is not a massive big star by any means. Robert Pattinson, for the last 10 years, has been doing small indie films. It's not a, a cast that you would automatically say, yeah, top-notch. There's no Tom Cruise or anything in it. That's what I'm trying yeah. to get out here. Regarding Robert Pattinson, actually, I'm interested to know what your thoughts were on his performance, because he seems to be the guy who's now, retrospectively, everyone's favourite actor after seeing the Batman trailer. 
Have you noticed that I, everybody, everybody of us sums a fan or a Patterson? They're always a fan. Oh, 100%. And listen, I've watched only a couple of movies that he's done. I watched A Good Time and... Oh, I forgot what the other one was called. I can't remember. But I really liked him in this movie. I actually turned around to Chris at one point because he was getting out of a car and he had the suit on and the hair was all slicked back. And I was like, oh, that's a Bruce Wayne move. Like, I felt like it was kind of like there was something about him that all of a sudden I noticed his stature and I noticed how well he carried himself. And it's probably the first time I've kind of looked at him and he's been really polished in a role in terms of, like, how he physically looked. But I really enjoyed his character. I thought he was almost like, you know, a kind of puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. He was this sort of, like, mischievous peripheral character who would sort of drop in little bits of information here and there and always had a little cheeky smile on his face. So you never really knew if you were getting the whole story from him or not. I, I really liked his character. I thought he was really good. Yeah, I really liked him as well. He based his uh, speech manner in the movie on Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. In fact, yeah. um, quite. I'd like to go. I would go back and see the film anyway. But I've been looking out for that because I'm quite a big fan of Christopher Hitchens. And it's interesting you mentioned this film being like an art house movie with a blockbuster budget, John. And I don't know if you've ever seen the film Primer. I have, yes. Which, yeah, that's very much a indie art house movie, but it had similar themes to this. Oh, oh that'll be another one of the list of things that I haven't seen compared to you guys. Sorry, John. I think I think it was the BFI they had put together a list of maybe five or six films that you should watch before going to see Tenet. And oh. Primer was one of those films for the, the themes that it actually had, yeah. And I could fully understand why they did that. It it does play in a, a similar way to the film. Yeah. And Primer's a very good movie as well. It's pretty dark towards the end because it starts off quite light in a way it just gets dark towards the end but a uh, very good movie but in terms of the blockbuster the freeway scene that oh, is funny. that's incredible it was absolutely incredible and especially when you read how they did it it makes it even more it, it, when you look at the magic behind this movie and how they went and did a lot of the scenes i'm sure i read there's no green screen used there's really? less visual yeah there's less visual effects than any other known film or blockbuster known film and yeah it's, most, it's mostly practical and it's just like how did you do that but you know how we did it it tells you but to pull it off filmmaking it's a filmmaking technique it's absolutely incredible but that freeway scene i was just totally hooked the entire time and it's not that difficult to kind of figure out halfway through what's going to go on that's not the point really at that point it's, it's, it's not that this film this, this film does keep you guessing towards the end Things do get quite predictable, but just go back to that spectacle idea. I was gonna—it's just a total treat for the eyes when you're watching it. It's thrilling. It's—it's it's really exciting to see. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like I was like bracing myself in the seat because you're watching the obviously the car shit along and there's various kind of stunts and stuff going. I literally was going like, oh my god, and holding on to the edge of my seat. I, I probably just because I haven't been to cinema in so long, and I was just so excited. But you're right; it is a total spectacle and and you know what whether you get it in inverted commas or not it is something just to behold to look at the the sheer craft of actually creating a piece of cinema like that that is as you've just said you know virtually no uh, green screen it is just practical effects that's incredible yeah the stunts and the sort of stunt sequences have to really stand up because you do get a view of them more than once in this film so yeah. if you didn't if you didn't think they were good the first time, and when you see them again from a slightly different angle, then you would just be like, "Oh, this is really boring," and it would totally drag you out of the film. But like you said, there's enough going on. It's it's very busy. All of these stunt sequences seem to be very very busy. So 
you can pick up things the second time that you didn't see the, the first time. As and obviously there's, it's taken as I said, taken from a slightly different angle as well. It's very good. Apparently the the bungee scene was one of my favourites as well. I really liked that. That was very yeah. inventive the, the way that they did that sort of reverse bungee and everything. Yeah, that's cracking. It's a very clever idea. That was obviously the trailer. I'm not really giving anything away there, but it was clever about how they employed that and what it was actually employed for as well. I'm going to go back to the the James Bond um, comparisons that I just couldn't get away from in this movie. I know Nolan is a massive Bond fan, and you've got the the final act of Inception is like a Bond movie. The beginning of Dark Knight Rises is like Bond 101. This entire movie from the undercover agent with the, with the quote with the quote unquote code name or no name in this case, Elizabeth Debitsky is the the Bond girl. You've got the Russian oligarch supervillain. Even the bit with the scene, you've got the protagonist and they've got the good guy and the bad guy sitting having dinner. It's a very Bond move. It's very suave. It's very cool. It's very understated. And you've got him explaining his master plan as well. (laughs) Yeah. And the backdrop of an exotic location where there's like yachts and, you know, glittering nightlife and stuff like that. Yeah, it's very, very Bond-esque. I wonder if Nolan ever would take up the mantle and, and do a Bond movie. I mean, it's almost like he's writing love letters to Bond <laughs> every time. And this, to me, was the first time from beginning to end, the whole thing felt like a Bond movie in many ways. And as much as I'd love to see a Christopher Nolan Bond movie, I don't have to because <laughs> I've seen it. I've already yeah, seen there's, there's no reason for him to do Bond. He has more freedom doing his own films than he would ever get doing a Bond film. I mean, look at Danny Boyle. Similar sort of outlook in terms of sort of larger budget art house films and he didn't fit into the bond mold he obviously came up against problems when he was trying to develop the film and obviously left it i don't see christopher nolan really want to get involved in that he's got enough power and enough influence in his own that he would just go ahead and do whatever film he wants to do that's a a very good point actually that he's got more it's strange that he's got more freedom to make a bond movie in his own movies than he would do if he was making a Bond movie. And speaking of his own movie, um, whether people like this movie or not, it's a blockbuster budget, massive distribution, should be the big film of the summer, basically. It's an original movie. It's not based on a book. It's not based on a comic. It's not based on anything. It's not a remake. It's an original movie, and people are always crying out for these. And Nolan, whether you like him or not, is giving us them. It's very Mm -hmm. rare. Yeah. doesn't happen very often. If you look at the number of films that come out over a summer, the majority are remakes, reboots or sequels. You know, the films that tend to put bums in seats, so having something like this is pleasing. It's very interesting. And it has been a hit as well. Obviously, it's not opened in America. I think it's this weekend it opens in America. And it took something like $50 million dollars worldwide in its first weekend which is pretty good considering cinemas are running at like a quarter capacity yeah. mind you it's on on the hour every hour at the local yeah. cinema worlds so yeah remember when you were younger and you used to like, watch the like, tv in america in america oh she in america why was i never born in america see if somebody came to me and said see in 30 years time you'll get to see tenet they won't oh well fair does I will endure the hardships of the East End of Glasgow until that point. Do you know, it's interesting though because the summer programme, as it stood up until obviously all this kicked off, was exactly that. It was comic book movies, it was reboots, it was remakes, it was, you know, your Top Gun, 
your Milan, um, the Fast and Furious sequel, and all that. So it would it would have been interesting to see it up against all of that type of content, and it's obviously benefiting from the fact that it is the sort of only film, as you say, playing on the air every hour, and it definitely merits that a keep viewing as well, which I think will help its takings. But it it's definitely a film that makes you. I think it makes you work hard. Like there's not a second where you can really sort of drop your concentration and relax. You definitely have yeah. to work for it from start to finish. And actually that was a really enjoyable part of it for me as well because so much of the stuff that comes out during the summer is a and there's no harm to it because I love a big popcorn blockbuster. I was really looking forward to popcorn and, and no time to die and stuff like that. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but I was enjoying the fact that I was actually having to work really hard just keeping up with what was going yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, I was like for the last like, like hour of this movie, I really need to go and pee. And I can, do you know, do you know, sometimes when you're watching a movie, you can assess mm-hmm. when to go. You can go. Hundred percent. Right. Yep. Yep. You, you've seen that many movies. You know the formula. You know the plot. You know where things are going to happen. You can you can chance it. With this, you couldn't do it. You just couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't take that chance. No, there's no let up. If you think about normal blockbusters, you've got at least one sex scene, especially a James Bond film. You probably get two. And you have a couple of scenes of relief as well. And I don't mean that sexy. <laughs> <or anything. laughs> I just thought you mean, laughed first because I was just like, hold it together. <laughs> there are scenes where it, it brings the audience down so they can come back up again. There's going to be something dramatic happening maybe in the next five minutes. Yeah, But you don't get that here. It's constant. And you are being fed information as you're going along while you're trying to concentrate on car chases or whatever. So yes, there, there is no let up. There is no toilet break really in this film at all. No. It's lucky you're young. <laughs> Trying my granny bladder, I need to pee all the time. Like, and these types of films are torture for me. Yeah, what did you guys think of the score? Because I loved it, couldn't get enough of it. And I've read so many like reviews and that people are saying it, it, it ruined it for them, it was too loud, which seems like a granny complaint. For a film, but I loved the way it sort of punctuated things. It was very like Zimmer esque, although I know it wasn't him that did it, but I loved it. I thought it was really like different and unusual, and I felt like the score was as challenging as what you were watching, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I have to agree, and it was unsettling when it had to be unsettling. Mm-hmm. I didn't think the score wasn't distracting to me in any way, and I was talking to them online about this, and I think it might depend on where you've seen the film. and. I think Dunkirk had similar criticisms uh, regarding the sound mixing, and it's to do with they don't mix the sound universally. I'm sure they don't mix right. it for a certain like speaker system, and most cinemas can't match that. So you're never going to get how it should sound, unfortunately. And that sounds like a weird thing, but I'm, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's correct. I'm sure I read that. I'm sure Dunkirk was a movie that people complained about. And yeah, I love that sound as well because it did feel like planes were literally flying past you and like bombs were dropping like behind you. I love the sound in Dunkirk as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've read a lot of criticism of, of all the things to pick up on in this movie. I don't know why the soundtrack is one of them, but I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite different and, as you see, like quite invasive when it had to be. I felt like the actual sounds, the, the percussion or whatever that we're using was really actually making me feel quite nervous and unsettled, which and it was a socially distanced composition. Or we, oh, yeah, that's right. They recorded it in their own houses, didn't they? Yeah, which is just fascinating in itself to, to pull something like that together. It's interesting about the sound because obviously I've seen it twice. The first time I saw it in the Odeon version of the IMAX and oh. the, the vocals were quite muffled 
during that and the soundtrack was right up in your face, which I thought was to get you to concentrate more. You're really sort of keenly listening to what was going on. But the second time I saw it, the vocals seemed to be up in the mix. It was a completely different cinema. It's one of the View cinemas. And you could hear the vocals a lot clearer. But the soundtrack seemed to be just as loud. It just seemed, as you say, it's, it's mm. different for different cinemas. It, mm-hmm. That kind of explains why. I thought it was just my ears, but obviously not. I think coronavirus has been a big, massive viral marketing campaign for this <laughs> film. <laughs> well, no, it has made... just little shit ever. <laughs> well, think about it. When... Can you think of an, another film that has had so much riding on it in terms of expectations? Not even the, the Avengers films no. have had this level of scrutiny before anybody actually saw the film. It's yeah, this was, really this was the film that was going to save the, the summer in terms of cinema, basically, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That's what they're hoping for. And I haven't really been checking out the reviews of that, but you're saying it's still going to be at the box office regardless of the pandemic. I think it's, it's another hit for Nolan, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It really is. You only have to look at the, the Guardian to see how they tackled the reviews. They had three people reviewing it for one online, one for the paper, and I think one for the Observer. And it was three different reviews and it was three different star ratings. It was a two, a three, and a five, I think it was, that they gave it. And people online were saying, come on, make up your minds. But that's pretty much the nature of the film and it's pretty much the nature of Nolan's films. They can be quite divisive. Yeah. You can love a film and you can be sitting beside somebody who says, well, that was just a big pile of rubbish. I didn't understand it. I didn't want to understand it. It was just it was just terrible. I didn't recognise that nice Adam Taylor Johnson at all all the way through the film, that kind of idea, which I didn't. I didn't either. I didn't. Yeah. I only when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, who is he? And then I had to go and work out who he'd played. Yeah. Same. Yeah, I was exactly the same. But again... It was a, a, another very nice performance. It's one of these films that will leave some people sort of scratching their heads. Dunkirk was the same. If you remember back at that, a lot of people said, nah, didn't enjoy it, didn't get it. What was going on there? Same Interstellar, actually. Interstellar um, had a lot I of uh, criticisms. I, I know you didn't like it. And that's the nature of Nolan's films for the most part. Prestige was like that, Inception. That's mm-hmm. They're challenging. The way that, that, that doesn't mean... You're not allowed to like it. I'm not saying that at all. It's just, but they are challenging movies. Even as, uh, even Memento. Because mm-hmm. the Dark Knight Rises wasn't the easiest watch for how the story played out. I love the film, don't get me wrong, but that got a lot of criticism. So I think people are waiting for Nolan to trip up, and he hasn't mm-hmm. done it universally yet. Yeah, I mean, I if like his was... movies. I, I, I just, this just isn't my favourite because it really did fall down in the, the last like 20 mm-hmm. to 30 minutes for me. But I like, I really, really enjoyed it up until that point. I was really engaged. I was really paying attention and I, I felt like I was I was following it. But within the last half hour, I was just like, oh, this just undid all of the good stuff that I really enjoyed about the movie up until this point. So for me, it's not my favourite Nolan, but I'm definitely not waiting for him to trip up. I wouldn't, you know, give me more. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. I don't mean anybody in this room is. Well, not this room because we're on social distance in their own houses. I made it sound like that. <laughs> I made it sound like we're recording a podcast to do. Then we're going to get stormtroopers at the door. And <laughs> no, I mean, it's but you sometimes can sense that, you know, people love a failure. Yeah. And I kind of felt that with a lot of the DC films. And even with the point where DC were releasing good films, people weren't accepting it. And now there seems to be a strange interest in shifting dynamic now where. People are really looking forward to the Batman, the Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman 1984, and they're panning what Marvel's got. 
People just like to tear something down. They're assholes. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, else... no one was, if no one was going to trip up, he would have tripped up after Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, for sure. Because that was seen as being, well, I suppose that was seen as being a high point. And if he was going to do go downhill from there, then, you know, do something a lot more personal and something that people genuinely wouldn't get. I think it would have happened then, but he's been very solid since then. Yeah. It's funny because I haven't watched The Prestige or Interstellar since seeing them in the cinema. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was in the third act those films kind of fell down for me. Not so much here, not with other stuff, but with those two. So maybe he's got a, maybe he's got a third act problem. Maybe. <laughs> just, can't, just can't seem to finish. Happens to a lot of men, you shouldn't worry. <laughs> the Prestige is you. Maybe that's what you're told. <laughs> the Prestige is a good movie. I love it. Interstellar. I just I, I couldn't get into it. I just didn't care about anyone. I just wanted it to end. And it did. Yeah. Eventually. <laughs> but with Tenet, would, would you recommend it? It's a recommend from me. Yes, I would definitely recommend it. It's really probably film of the year for me so far, I would say. And I've seen a lot of rubbish. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. I'm just like, everyone go back to the cinema. Go multiple times. So that's a universal recommendation for the first pandemic movie. Is that a good way to put it? <laughs> yeah, as long as people don't actually start making movies about the COVID pandemic. I also must reiterate that when I say first pandemic movie, the movie's not about COVID. I know I've made Excellent. a few clues. I've, I've mentioned about the COVID viral marketing campaign and that. This, this movie's not about COVID. I have not just spoiled it for you. Please don't send hate mail to me any more than you usually do. Now, this is, 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 is a slightly spoilery aspect. What we're going to talk about next, we're going to talk about our favourite top three movies with non-linear plots. Although, I would argue Tenet does, in its own way, have a linear plot. It's just not presented chronologically. And that's as much as I'm going to say about it because I don't want to get into the weeds and we'll start discussing the finer parts of the plot. Maybe we should do that offline because I'm quite curious about this conversation. But we're going to discuss our top three movies with non-linear plots and I believe I'm up first. Is that correct? It is. Excellent. I'll go first. I always seem to be last for some reason. Feels that way. Standing at complex. <sighs> complex I... of finishing last? Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, he's finally come down to our level. <laughs> It's dark down here. Welcome. <laughs> Come out of the gutter, Rose. Yeah. Smells a bit, but it's okay. My first pick is the 2002 black comedy, The Rules of Attraction, directed by Roger Avery and based on Brett Easton Ellis' book of the same name. This movie stars James Vanderbeek, Shannon Sossman, Ian Summerholder, Jessica Biel and Kate Bosworth in roles that none of them ever did before and have really done since. This is a movie about a love triangle. You've got Vanderbeek, Sossman, and Summerholder all intertwined in this kind of love triangle. And although the movie was marketed like a teen comedy, it is the anti-teen comedy. The movie is dark. It's violent. It's really, really funny, but it's ultimately tragic. And it's a really, it's a hard watch at times. In terms of an all-linear plot, this movie starts off at the beginning. And the rest of the movie is told almost like a flashback, except it doesn't really have a flashback style device. It goes beyond that. It starts at the end and basically tells you everything that's going to happen to these characters and then rewinds time, then 
go to the beginning to when they all started their relationships. And even from then on, although it's kind of linear, it jumps, there's massive gaps in the relationships of what happens. And the director said he did this deliberately because he wanted to show gaps in what was happening because college life is like that. People remember it and go, I remember that. <laughs> there's things, there's always things missing. And all three characters as well, they're unreliable narrators. You're not really too sure who's telling the truth. And there's even one scene where two different versions of what's going on are told side by side. And you're not sure what version is real. It's a very fascinating movie, how it's done. And even when you get to the end of the movie and it replays what happened at the beginning, it's not the same. It's a different ending. Like, almost like, here's what we've tried. It's not worked. Let's rewind and do something different because this is a bad idea. It's a very clever movie. I don't think it gets enough love. It didn't get good uh, good reviews when it came out. I don't think it done great at the box office. But it became a cult movie in time. It's very infamous as well for a scene where the character Victor is called his European trip. And it's like a five-minute montage of this character's trip across Europe. And the director even wanted to make all that footage in a movie itself, but legally could not release it. Which I think is pretty nuts. He wanted to base it on another British scenario to become quite a ratty. But he said they could never get consent forms to people who were in it because they basically just felt it just it just followed the actor and character twenty four seven through nightclubs and picking people up and going to the pub and getting steaming and waking up hungover and going to hash bars and Amsterdam and it's it's incredible that this scene was shot. Took, took ages to shoot and takes like five minutes of the movie and that is told like, really quickly and really fast cuts and really adds to that non-linear narrative of the film. Have you seen it? No, I've read the book. I'm a big Brett Easton Ellis fan. I love his books. They are really, really just get under your skin and really fuck with your head for days. But I actually, I think I'm a victim of bad marketing because I just assumed this was like a wee teeny bopper movie when it came out. I didn't realise it was based on that book. So I now will go and watch it because I, I love Brett Easton Ellis, but I, I, I know the storyline, obviously. But um, no, I would give it a watch. I obviously thought it was a different movie to the book. Did you see me, John? I hadn't, but in preparation for this, I gave it a watch because it's on Amazon Prime just now. What? Um, I, I know, such a spot. I really liked the mechanics of it. I thought that was very well done, the way that the story starts at the end and then goes back and then goes back another bit and back and forward. But I hated every single character in the film. I thought they were insufferable, absolutely yeah. insufferable. But not because of the way that they were portrayed by the, the actors. I just thought the, the characterisation of them all, they, they were all just... They were nothing like real people at all in any way, not even like college students or anything. And within about 10 minutes, I was ready to throw something at the screen because it was just, it was just infuriating. It just really was. I don't know if it's an age thing or what, but I was just like, oh my God, this is so annoying. But the story itself was good, but that kind of put me off a wee bit. But yes, I, I did enjoy it to a certain extent, but I didn't really get as much enjoyment as you obviously did from it. I love this movie. It's one of my favourite films of all time and interesting maybe if it helps any uh, Brett Easton Ellis likes this movie I because he's not the biggest like. fan yeah. yeah he's not the biggest fan of a lot of his uh, adapted works but he thinks the director really kind of nailed the essence of this and it is fairly, it's got differences to the book as well that means it's not just going to be a re rehash so I think you'll enjoy mm -hmm. it yeah no I mean as I say I love his writing his writing is like 
really distinct and you know you're reading about Ace and Ellis book. So, I mean, yeah, I would give it a go. My first choice is the 1994 Quentin Tarantino classic, Pulp Fiction, which was in a nice twist conceived by Tarantino and the director of Rules of Attraction, Roger Avery as well. Stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, Bing Rains, Yuma Thurman, and plenty of other folk as well. It tells three, maybe four stories, I think. It's, it's basically, there's basically six or seven elements to it. And the film is told in a very non-linear way. But all the stories link up and the characters jump back and forward between the, the, the various elements of the stories. You've got the hitman story in the diner. You've got the boxer who's trying to get away. You've got all sorts of other elements. You've got Vincent who has to take out the, the wife of the local mobster, Marcellus Wallace, I believe his name is. And it's all the stories around that. And it's obviously very hip, very cool. And it's just a fantastic piece of screenwriting and it works so well. And even now it stands up, which is understandable given the quality of the people involved and the fact that it's Tarantino totally behind it as well. It's one of these things that I thought of immediately when we start, started talking about non-linear movies. Now, you both have seen this. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> no, I said imagine I hadn't, of course. I oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was my um, Halloween costume for this year. Last year. Right? Yeah. yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. You may have just been... <laughs> <seen that. laughs> I mean, for me, this is the first movie I've seen like this, with this kind of narrative technique. It probably it might be the same for a lot of people as well, to be fair. I mean I first watched it, I didn't see the film from start to finish. I've seen segments of it. Really? So was still able to follow what was going on. And then I remember sitting watching from start to finish and going, why is it doing this? I just don't understand why it was doing it at first, but that's brilliant. That's a brilliant film. As you say, it's just so utterly cool and suave in how it's done. It's cracking yeah. film. Very slick and it's very sort of when I saw Inglorious Bastards, I felt like there was really strong elements of pulp fiction in that as well, just the way that that's told and the sort of use of music and stuff like that. But I don't think you'll ever get anything as cool as, as pulp fiction. It really is the sort of epitome of like really fucking cool movie making. He has gone back to that well a few times and used sort of a non linear narrative in some of his other films, not to the same extent as he did in pulp fiction. And he has been accused of overusing it, but. It's part of his storytelling technique. It, yeah, it works well. Yeah, I mean, Reservoir Dogs had it before Pulp Fiction. I mean, they went and wrote True Romance. They wanted True Romance to be done the way Pulp Fiction is. And Tony Scott said, nah. Oh, really? Interesting. So I am going for Gaspar Noe's 2002 movie, Irreversible, which I know we've spoken about before, but to me, this was the most obvious example of, of non-linear narrative because it's like the nightmare told in reverse. It, it uses structure, a narrative structure, really, really well because it's actually sort of demonstrating how cruel time is. Because the movie opens with you know Vincent Cassell, you know, beating the shit out of somebody with a fire extinguisher, and you're like, hmm, why are we starting here? But actually, that isn't even the worst part of the movie. And it's a film that really plays with time in the sense that you're aware that you have a lack of control when it comes to linearity or whatever. And the, obviously the kind of infamous rape scene that takes place or sort of smack bang in the middle of the movie, it feels like time stands still. It, it just goes on and on and on. Whereas other parts of the film are more punchy and more sort of fast paced. 
this just seems to take up way more screen time than the, the eight or nine minutes that it is. And obviously by the time you get to the end of the movie and you're seeing sort of happier scenes and, you know, Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci's characters together, it doesn't matter because your head's already fucked. You've already you've seen the damage that's about to come, so you can't even take pleasure in those moments because you know exactly the consequences of, you know, their night out. It's a film that I think uses time really, really effectively in terms of actual just pacing, in terms of fast and slow throughout the film, and that's sort of contributed to by the soundtrack. But it's a film that really, really destroys your sort of sense of... I think control is the big thing for me, sense of control, because you have... It's one of those things where, you know, every action has consequences or every action has a reaction, that sort of thing. And you're just seeing the conclusion of it and working your way back. And oh, it's a film that totally grinds you down, but it's so well executed, so well done. And honestly has to be one of the best made movies of all time, despite the fact that it is a really difficult watch. I think in terms of if you're interested in structure and, you know, sort of playing around with narrative, this has to be a, a go-to movie. I think it's one of the best that, that noise made and actually just is one of the best movies to ever be made, not to jump up too much but I think it's a a perfect example of playing with time but also playing with your head and I think that's what Nolan tries to do with with Tenet as well and I think that it's just a it's a hard watch but definitely a worthwhile one I assume you guys have both seen it yeah yeah I had some uh, movies only watch once unless uh, as you say the way the the plot's told the reverse chronology it's not just it's not just as simple as taking a movie and telling it backwards the way the film is written and then presented it's the impact it has on how he does it because if you, if you watch that film forwards it wouldn't make as much sense it wouldn't have the same impact it, you wouldn't feel the same ups and downs with it but yeah stunning movie in terms of technical point of view from a technical point of view no still not seen it from our last discussion either i will get to it at some point but in a way the discussions that we've been having it's kind of put me off watching it to be to be honest, because of the brutality within the film, but like you say, oh, it's up if there it with the Nightingale, of... which you've seen, it's up there with that in terms I of your watchability. <laughs> so you're not going to go and buy the T-shirt or anything anytime <laughs> soon. Well, my next link actually does fall in quite nicely for yours, Mary, and I'm going to go with Nolan's first feature movie, Memento. And when I first heard it, Irreversible, people spoke about it in the same breath as you mentioned Memento because both movies had a reverse chronology. But I remember there was one review about it and said the difference in Irreversible and Memento is Irreversible didn't do it as a gimmick. Memento clearly does. You've got the character played by Guy Pearce who has a really severe brain injury that means that he can't form new memories. So the movie's been told backwards. It, it's a very interesting plot device because you've seen his memory in reverse. He can't remember anything after a few minutes. So we're getting told has passed through the plot of the movie. But you've also, well, the main story's getting told backwards. You've got another story that's getting told forwards. And both of them are parallel with each other. And it's basically a film noir murder mystery where Guy Pearce's characters try to find out who murdered his wife. And the movie starts off with a murder. And you kind of think, oh, there's this kid. I'm quite similar to the verse going that way. And then by the time you get to the end of the mental which I thought was quite a shocking <laughs> ending. It all makes sense, it all ties up nicely, and it's, it's a film with a lot of rewatchability factor as well, based on how clever it's told. There's also a, a feature in one of the DVDs, a hidden Easter egg, we can watch the movie forwards. I haven't done this. Ooh. And it'd be interesting from a merit point of view, because I think, for the most part, it would work as a standalone the, the, the 
thriller detective story, but you would lose a lot, obviously, with the way it's told. It's told backwards. This is a, a cracking film. I've seen it so many times. Big fan of Guy Pierce is great in this. And an early indication of what no one has in store going forward. Have <laughs> you both seen it? Yes. Yeah, it was the film that really introduced me to Christopher Nolan. I have watched the Easter egg version of it on the DVD where it plays it forward and it doesn't have the same impact at all because it's still a, a good story but it doesn't have the same build up if you like because of the fact that it's, it's constructed in such a way that you're going backwards from the end to the start and that's what makes the film so when you do it the other way it doesn't quite work in the same way but it's still a reasonably good film. I, I thought it was a cracking film when I watched it. Really, it was one of these mind-blowing films that you don't get very often, and as you say, which no one tends to specialise in. Yeah, so if I've got on DVD, I've seen it a good few times, but I haven't watched it in a while. You can take it out and watch it again, because, yeah, it's a, a great film. Yeah, I watched it as part of non-linear narrative week at uni, so <laughs> that bit sounded really well. <laughs> that was the first movie I ever saw Guy Pearson, actually. Which I know it was just a shame because it was a good movie, but it was the first movie I saw that. But I loved it. I remember sitting, it was like a rainy Tuesday because we had our screens from half five to half seven sitting watching it, and my head was just like, by the time it was done, I, I loved it the first time I saw it. It was really good. Yeah. You see him like standing in front of the mirror, and he's got all the tattoos of the clothes mm-hmm. of his wife's cover all over him. And yeah, very, very clever movie. And unlike the kind of movies normally going to make sense, not a massive budget here. You know, it's no. just. It's all about the story. And again, though, you can see even with a small budget, the techniques he can employ as a director. He was always going to go for that kid. <laughs> Did you call it at the time? Yeah. <laughs> Did I? Watching that film going, but I don't know, I don't know, watching the following, the following actors, that's, this guy's going to be good. <laughs> that film, though, isn't great, but hey ho, we all need to start somewhere. John, what's your next pick? That is your John, isn't it? It is, yes. My second pick is the 2016 film Arrival, which comes from director Denis Villeneuve and stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker. It is the story of 12 spaceships landing in various locations on Earth and the human population's attempts to try and communicate the occupants of the ships. They try and do various things as a a world. There is various countries that join up together and try and work out and the American one is led by a linguist who's the Amy Adams character. She is trying to make some sort of contact with the aliens which are called heptopods. Now this doesn't sound like it's anything to do with a non-linear narrative at all and you don't think that when you're actually watching it. There are a few clues in there if you watch it carefully. There's a a lot of palindromes involved in it, but it's only when you get maybe about two-thirds of the way into the film that you realise that there is a non-linear aspect to the story. That is partly down to the fact that we are so conditioned by the information that we are presented in films that we take it as read. We we realise that certain things are put on screen to give us certain information and make us think in a certain way. Now, what the filmmakers do here is they start off with almost a statement and you accept that. And from there on, you accept everything that's going on. But it's only later on when things are actually explained to you that you realise that basically they've been fucking with you all the way through the film. And it makes for such a 
good movie and it's such a it's such a good feeling when you actually figure out what's actually going on and it's it's unusual in movies you don't get a lot of films that are like that and it works really well and because of that the film is just absolutely fantastic i do take it you've both seen this yeah i've seen that yeah, i am not believe as far as i'm concerned he's a genius oh what I am not a fan of this film. I thought it was so incredibly overhyped and overrated that I, I, I couldn't believe we'd seen the same film. I was discussing it with people, and everybody talks about the ending. It's been this work of genius, and it's so clever, and it's this great twist, but it's essentially the same ending as Bill and Ted, which was did for comedic effect, <laughs> and they do it as a genius narrative plot device. I mean, it's the exact same ending. True, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but it's true, but it doesn't detract for me. <laughs> that wasn't the thing that attracted for me. I just Nor me. Nor me. Just, I just thought it was dull overall. But yeah, when, I, when the ending happened, I was sitting there and I'm going, I've seen this ending before. <laughs> yeah, not a fan of movie. Oh, you're kidding. I just, I don't think that Villeneuve's made a bad movie. I think he's up there with Nolan as just being like world class. Ah, Blade Runner was dull as well. Okay. I think, I mean, uh, us Blade Runners is incredibly boring, so... I think we've got a whole podcast worth of discussion right there, just in those two statements, my friend. <laughs> right, so, Mary. I'm getting cancelled for different reasons this week. Yep. Um, <laughs> my next pick, because I'm feeling very cultured this week, is the 2016 Pedro Almodovar film, Julieta. It stars Emma Suarez and Adriana Ugarte. Hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, as older and younger versions of Julieta. It's very female-centric and typical Amaldivar style and it basically is a story that's kind of told in flashback and what I'm going to describe in the next few sentences is going to sound really shit and really cheesy but it's not. So the older Julieta decides to sort of track down her her daughter um, who'd been missing for 12 years eh, after a trip to a sort of religious camp and she starts sort of looking back on her journals and starts you know putting entries in her diary and then it starts to tell the story of, in flashback of you know, various childhood traumas and how their relationship broke down. That sounds rubbish and it sounds like she's sitting there going, dear diary, you know, today my daughter ran away. I am very sad. It's definitely not like that. And Amodovar uses these two sort of conflicting narratives to actually demonstrate Julieta's decline into depression because as the movie goes on and the colour starts to fade, which is a bizarre experience for a Amodovar film because they're usually so decline and this bleak and sort of unflinching look at what it's like to be dealing with mental health issues and the breakdown of this mother-daughter relationship it's kind of similar to irreversible in the sense that you know you sort of see the consequences of the actions before you see the actions but it's just it's a really well crafted really unusual movie i think for a mode of our although it is you know very female heavy and very you know focuses on themes of you know family and, and love and life it's it's quite bleak it's quite dark and as i say the color starts to drain from it which is quite an unusual experience but it's you know there's moments of black humor there's you know kind of typical mother-daughter sort of button heads type of thing it's a it's just a really interesting watch and I and I loved it. I got it on DVD a couple of years ago and it's, again, I, he's a filmmaker for me who can do no wrong and I, I think this is a really, really good movie of his. Have you guys seen it at all? I have not. I have. I think it was my film of the year in 2016. I absolutely ah, love yeah. this movie. So I think it opened the Glasgow Film Festival that year and oh, I it? didn't know what to expect from it because I hadn't really read up on anything beforehand and I was just totally blown away by it. I loved every single minute that those characters were on the screen. Yeah, the, the, the fade was quite a, a, a strange thing in one of his films. I, I do totally agree with that. 
but yeah, I just love this movie. I'm a, a big Hamilton fan anyway. I've got quite a number of his movies sitting, and I've been meaning to have a bit of a marathon for a wee while now. But that, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic choice. Thanks, guys. I'm flattered. Well done in that movie, you picked movie. Gonna get a wee gold star from a t shirt later. Mm-hmm. You did your job and you did it well. Yes. <laughs> Sammy, you're up again. Yeah, I, my third pick is a film that I didn't even know had an online narrative until I was watching it. And I went with David Fincher's Social Network. This is a movie that you don't even really think about not having a online narrative. And, but it starts off, and you've got the story of Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, at university, pals with Andrew Garfield, and basically create Facebook. But then the movie, without much warning, flash forwards in the future, where Zuckerberg's been sued, and there's two different depositions happening. There's one with him and the Winklevoss, is it Winklevoss twins? Both played by Arnie Hammer, which I didn't realise was one person until the movie was finished. I just thought, oh, that thought it was incredible how it was done. And also, in another scene, Andrew Garfield is soon. So clearly, these both these scenes can't be happening at the same time. So they're different timelines. And then the rest of the story is told in almost like a flashback. Except it's not a flashback. Because it's, it's not done as a... That's not the technique used. Because it starts off with, this is the present time. Oh, wait, no. Here's what's happened to him. Now, here's the present time. But both these events are happening and it goes back and it all intertwines wonderfully to just show how and I'm talking about in terms of the plot in the movie, the fictional Mark Zuckerberg in case he's listening, which let's be honest he is how he managed to devise and create Facebook but freeze people out or did he? Because he's also quite sympathetically shown as well and this is done not just with the deposition scenes, there's flashbacks to show was he the villain, was he not? And the whole movie is just expertly constructed in my opinion and it when it ends, the movie doesn't flash back to end. It stays in that now, new, present time. And I just thought the film was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And like I said, it's not a film that employs that technique uh, cheaply in any way. It's not a marketing technique. It's not used. You don't even notice it until you're watching it. And even looking at your face, maybe you probably even think about it at first. No, I don't. You've seen it, John? I have, yeah. I really like it. The premise of it, you've got to wonder how it ever got made in the first place because obviously <laughs> David Fincher went and said, I want to make a film about the founding of Facebook. And say, well, that's an app. See, yeah, but, you know, it'll be really interesting. But it's the way that they did it that they focused not on the actual physicality of actually putting together an app and getting it out there. It was everything surrounding it. It was all the personalities that were involved in it. And like I said, based around the two court cases and based around the, the, the initial setup. So, it was, it was done very well and it relied on the performances to set it alight rather than the story itself because the story itself could have been quite dry yeah. but when you, you have a combination of the actors in place and uh, Fincher directing them who by all accounts is a very analytical director, he likes to do a lot of takes he, he likes to get it right, he likes to have a lot of coverage for everything that he does so he spends a lot, an awful lot of time going over and over things so, and you can see that in the finished product because it's just so precise and it, just, it works really, really well. Yeah, you've also got the script by Aaron Sorkin as well, so you've got this really clever dialogue. And as you're saying, John, it's, it's a film about a, a Facebook app, about an app, basically, the story behind it. Most of the movie, for all intents and purposes, is fairly fictional. And mm. 
doesn't matter because it's not supposed to be a biographical true story. It's the, the fiction in this case is a lot more interesting because it, it makes a more complete story. And it's just a, I thought I'd love this film. I think it's one of Fincher's most underrated movies. So effective. Yeah, it's like a film where the, the wordiness of it means you have to like sit up and focus and pay attention and you're trying to keep up with different conversations that are spinning. You're trying to remember if they're in the same timeline now that you've mentioned it. You are like, has that happened before that or whatever? It's really, yeah, it's a brilliant movie. The score as well, Betrayed and Reznor and Atticus Ross, the score of this movie is absolutely brilliant. I went and bought it in CD. You can just listen to it like an album. It's great. Showing your age, buying things on CD. <laughs> well, this movie's 10 years old already. Actually. It's crazy, isn't it? No, we started, we started watching The Wire as an aside and I was like, God, this looks really dated. And I was like, oh yeah, 2002 was like 20 years ago. <laughs> In my head, it was like five <laughs> minutes ago. Yeah, I was watching The Sopranos during my rewatch and it was the, the 90s. That started. Yeah, I was a child. Right, so my last choice is the film Amoris Peros from 2000 by Alejandro González Iñárritu and it is three stories that are linked by a car accident. The various stories come together in this accident but they don't come together they don't it's not the end of each story like for instance there's a story where there's a, a young guy who is involved in dog fighting and at the very beginning of the film you're focused on this character as he's driving away with this dog sitting in the back of the car that's been shot and he's trying to get away from some other bad guys that are trying to basically kill them that flashes back then to the start of that story and tells that story up until the point where there's a car accident there's a second story about a supermodel who has some problems with her boyfriend. He is already married and everything. And the car accident for them is quite near the beginning of the story. And there's a third story as well, which is an old, well, he's, he's, he's an old Jakey, basically. But he actually turns out to be this hitman who was put away for years and he's got a whole complicated backstory with his family. They thought he was dead and he's, he's working part-time for the police. But most of the time he just wanders about the streets with a pack of dogs that he has. And all these stories intertwine. There's various wee elements within each separate story where you see other characters sort of dropping in. And they don't have very much to do with that particular story, but it, it advances the story in certain ways. And it just comes together beautifully in this film that is over two and a half hours long, which feels in the face of it to be quite long, but it really goes in really, really quick. I watched it again last week in prep for this and just fell in love with the film all over again. There's three different stories, as I said, and the three stories have got slightly different music. They're filmed in slightly different ways. It's sort of the first film has a lot of handheld stuff. The second one's more sort of static shots. Third is a bit of a mixture. So there's differences in the way that they've approached each of the, the various elements of it, and it works really, really well. Have you guys seen this? Do you know, I haven't seen it, and I just had a quick Google search there because the director's name sounded familiar. And I'm not talking about film; he's more kind of recent stuff. It was uh, 21 Grams, mm-hmm. which I have seen, which also has a very similar structure. To the movie, um, yes. as does Babel, I believe as well. Uh, it's a bit of a trilogy, actually, that he's kind of thrown right. together. It's a bit of a loose trilogy. Yeah, he's, he's non-linear. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, sorry. Uh, but no, it was funny because you, you were you're speaking about that where I, I could swear I have seen it, but it wasn't it's 21 grams I've seen. And I know the plot's different, but the style mm-hmm. of the movie is still very similar. I love this movie, and John, you've picked me to the post by, by picking it. I, I think it's an incredible piece of cinema. I'm glad that you did pick it so that we could talk about it. It's just it's such a good movie. So my last pick is slightly more recent, slightly more mainstream than John's Art House pick. And it is Drew Goddard's 2018 Bad Times at the El Royale. I love this movie and Sammy like what you were saying earlier about Tenet being an original fresh piece of a cinema this absolutely is as well it's kind of Tarantino-esque and it's use of sort of title cards and music and sort of fades in and out and it's kind of got sort of two gimmicks going on for it so it's a movie set in one location and it's also got this sort of multi-stranded narrative and the non-linear part of it as well so you've got a whole host of characters turn up at this hotel, which sits on the dividing line between California and Nevada. You've got Jeff Bridges as, as Father Flynn, and you've got John Hamm as the cheesy vacuum salesman, and then you've got the uh, singer, Cynthia Revo, and then later on in the movie, Chris Hemsworth turns up as this sort of Manson-esque, hippie, serial killer, druggy kind of guy. But basically the story is told by sort of going into each hotel room and finding out the backstory of each character. And I kind of loved it because it was almost like an episode of Columbo. You kind of knew what was happening and then you got to the, the story behind it afterwards. And it sort of keeps you guessing as to why these people have turned up at this location, which is obviously abandoned. You know, what's their backstory? How have they ended up here? Why are they, how are they interacting with each other? And it's a movie that I think kind of keeps you, you guessing because, again, you're never really sure when you're being told each individual story, is that the truth? Because none of them seem particularly reliable, just in their behaviour and the sort of, you know, shifty glances to camera sort of thing. I thought it was a really fresh piece of content. I loved Chris Hemsworth walking up at the end and just kind of stealing the show. And I just thought it was a very, again, very clever, very fast pace. And it does, it makes you work. You are trying to sort of piece everything together. It does feel like a giant game of Cluedo at times. But it's just a really clever unusual and fresh piece of cinema and I, and I absolutely loved it. I take it you guys have both seen this. It was out really recently. Yeah, I went to see this in cinema and I agree with that. I enjoyed this movie a lot and as you say, Chris Hensworth just completely steals the show. He's so, so good as that kind of cult with style role and the way he kind of walks about in the kind of rain with his hair down and his shirt open. You can see why people flock to the cult. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot better than Charles Manson, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, a cracking film. Very interesting pick as well, especially of something more kind of recent and a very underrated movie. I don't think this got as much love as it really should have. I don't think so. I think it, I don't think it, I, I think it performed well, but not like tremendously. And I think it kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. But it's definitely, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend seeking it out. It's a really, really clever piece of cinema. Yeah, it's quite. It's almost like a modern noir film, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. With the the way that they they rock up to the hotel and it's right on the border between California and Nevada and it's there for a reason because they were able to gamble in Nevada but they weren't able to gamble in California. It's just it's a very good premise and then obviously take it from that with the the various rooms and everything and all the stories behind it. Yeah, it works really, really well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been good star. You've got good picks. We've actually seen the films and vice versa. I know what a day to be alive. Yep, that's our top three picks regarding um, the non-millionaire movie, uh, storylines in movies. Please let us know yours. There's plenty more to choose from. I was surprised how many of the boys that I've seen when I started doing some kind of research. And there's some I'd like to have picked, like you had uh, Doug Lyman's Go, Oculus, but there were movies I hadn't seen in so long that I just wasn't too familiar with. But some cracking ones out there. 
Uh, please let us know yours on the social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can find us at Movie Scramble. You can email us at, I can't say email at Movie Scramble at. Does make any sense, John? <laughs> Work in the email. <laughs> you can send us an email at moviescramble.co.uk. Sorry, that's wrong as well, isn't it? You can send, we can be contacted at podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. Do you know where I'm falling down here? I used to always say you can contact John. I used to always have the email just John for some reason. And I thought, that's a bit harsh, actually. It should be, I'll just contact him, but you can't say contact us at moviescramble. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Neither you want for the ampersand. That's what I'm going to say. Moviescramble ampersand. It's not an ampersand. An ampersand's the and. Yes. <laughs> Which the AOL, the AOL use that as a symbol? Yeah, I and think we'll, so. Back in. Yeah, yeah. Just email us. <laughs> Don't tell us that in Twitter. None of us can fucking see an email address. Well, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and let us know your thoughts and the movies discussed, but also in Tenet because. Yeah, as much as, as successful as this movie's been, I think it's going to be very, very divisive. But if you haven't liked it, go and watch it again. What else are you up to? <laughs> Especially if you haven't set up local 40 areas in Scotland, there's not really much you can do. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and take care. Bye.